Good afternoon. I am Risa Galyubov, Dean of the Law School, and I want to thank uh, Becca Nelson and everyone at the Law School Foundation who has <clears throat> made uh, this event possible. Um, as you may have read, uh, I just announced that I am stepping down. This is my um, last year as dean, and this is my first alumni event since that announcement. So it feels a little bit bittersweet. When I became dean, I was told that getting to know the alumni would be one of the best parts of the job, and it has absolutely been the case, um, and it will be a part of the job that I will miss. So I'm glad to be here with all of you today um, and glad that we've started some new traditions, maybe out of some terrible circumstances, but good new traditions like webinars like these where you get to hear from our fabulous faculty um, and uh, and join the law school for, uh, for, for a little part of your afternoon. So um, I'm really glad that you've made time today to listen to professors Aditya Bamzai and Scott Ballinger, who are going to give us a preview of the upcoming Supreme Court term, and you'll have a chance to ask them some questions too. It is absolutely my pleasure to introduce them to you. They both know the Supreme Court very well, both as former law clerks and as appellate advocates who have briefed and argued cases at the court themselves. So Scott Ballinger is the director of our appellate litigation clinic. He is also a double who, having graduated from UVA in 1993 and from the law school in 1996. After law school, he clerked for Judge Clifford Wallace on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and then for Justice Antonin Scalia at the Supreme Court. He served as an attorney in the Antitrust Division at the Department of Justice before joining Latham and Watkins in Washington, D.C. He spent 20 years at Latham as an associate and then a partner in the firm's Supreme Court and appellate litigation practice. And during his time in practice, he argued three cases before the Supreme Court and dozens in the courts of appeals and in trial courts across the country. Scott came back to the law school in 2019 to lead our appellate litigation clinic, which provides third-year law students with astounding, simply astounding opportunities to appear both in written briefs and in in-person oral arguments um, before the federal courts of appeal. About 12 students each year get to argue in federal courts of appeals. These are not mock trials, moot court. This is actual um, cases in the courts of appeals. And in recent years, we've had a couple of students who got to argue twice, uh, one student who argued in an end bank case for the Fourth Circuit. So Scott just does a tremendous job um, leading that clinic and um, procuring those opportunities for our students. And we're thrilled uh, uh, about the work he does and that he can be with us here today. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce Aditya Bamzai, who is uh, a Martha Lubin Karsh and Bruce A. Karsh Bicentennial Professor of Law here at UVA. Uh, Aditya joined the law school's faculty in 2016, where he um, has been since then, and he teaches and writes in the areas of administrative law, civil procedure, computer crime, and conflicts of law. He is a co-author of the forthcoming ninth edition of the casebook, Administrative Law, the American Public Law System, Cases and Materials, as well as many, many articles in uh, the fanciest of law reviews. Uh, Aditya is a graduate of Yale University and the University of Chicago Law School. After law school, he clerked for Judge Jeffrey Sutton on the Sixth Circuit, and then also for Justice Scalia at the Supreme Court. Before joining our faculty, Aditya served as an attorney advisor in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice and as an appellate attorney, both in private practice and at DOJ's National Security Division. 
While on the faculty from 2019 to 2021, Aditya served as a member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, a federal agency charged with ensuring that the government's national security efforts are balanced with the need uh, between the need to protect privacy and civil liberties. Um, and in 2018, Aditya made his debut argument at the Supreme Court, where he was granted argument time as an independent amicus curiae. This is an event so rare that Bloomberg Law found that it was the first time since at least the 1940s that the court had granted a law professor's request to argue in a case. Um, and I will say uh, the other remarkable thing about this case is that he was relying on Marbury Madison, which many of us think of as, you know, an old case we teach because it was important then, but Ajitia showed how important it is now. And Judge Justice Elena Kagan actually spent about 25 the 15 pages of her 25 page opinion discussing his argument um, and his uh, his reasoning. So we are so glad to have Aditi here today to share his expertise too. And without further ado, I am delighted to present both of these wonderful professors and hear their insights. And I will now uh, turn it over to Aditya. Thank you. Thank you so much, Risa, for the introduction. And thanks to all of you who are here today. We uh, very much appreciate your time. By statute, the Supreme Court's annual term begins on the first Monday of October, which is this coming Monday. That is when October term 2023 will begin. But although that is the term's official start, in a sense, OT 2023 has already begun. As many of you know, the court met yesterday for what's known as its long conference, which is the first conference after the end of the summer. And during that conference, the justices consider petitions for certiorari that have accumulated over the summer. An order list granting some of those petitions might issue any day now. And so the complexion of the upcoming Supreme Court term and the types of cases that the court is considering might look quite different in a week. Our preview of the term is necessarily a snapshot based on the information we have at the moment. So Scott teaches classes in civil liberties and I teach classes in administrative law Scott will be going first with a preview of some of the court's high-profile cases in the civil liberties arena, uh, and then maybe we'll have a little back and forth, and I'll take it up with some of the administrative law cases in just a moment. Thanks. So we have some big First Amendment and Second Amendment cases on tap this term, and if I have a little uh, more time, I'll say a few words about the 16th Amendment tax case. Let me start with the, the big Second Amendment case. United States versus Rahimi, which is sort of a stalking horse for even more important cases that are waiting in the wings. I'm sure everyone remembers District of Columbia versus Heller from 2008, which held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess firearms. Heller held that, that a cop in Washington, D.C. had the right to keep a, a typical handgun inside his own home for self-defense purposes. But Justice Scalia, who wrote the opinion and the court, were careful to say that they were talking about law-abiding responsible persons and didn't mean to call into question traditional restrictions on the possession of guns by felons and the mentally ill, or in particularly sensitive places like schools and courthouses. So a couple of years ago in a case called New York Rifle and Pistol Club versus Bruin, the court held that the right to bear arms exists outside the home as well, and that the primary guidepost for any limitations on that right has to be history and tradition rather than any kind of conventional interest balancing. So if the government can't come up with a pretty tight historical analogy for any particular firearms regulation that it wants to enforce, the Second Amendment now prohibits that regulation. 
And the Bruin decision has set off a string of recent decisions in the lower courts holding that federal firearms uh, crimes violate the Second Amendment. United States versus Rahimi, which the court has already granted, is about 18 U.S.C. 922 G8, which forbids possession of firearms by persons who are subject to civil protective orders. The Fifth Circuit held that there's no historical precedent for taking guns away from people who are subject to civil protective orders, so 922 G8 is unconstitutional. Now, depending on the, the media sources that you consume, you may have seen this portrayed as a holding that because domestic violence was legal in colonial times, the government therefore can't take guns away from domestic abusers. That's really not what the Fifth Circuit held. The Fifth Circuit's actual point was that in the 18th and 19th century, the law would take your guns away only after you had actually been convicted of a crime. By contrast, judges will frequently order civil protective orders uh, in the modern era on very little factual showing at all. Uh, often just for the asking, and even in the history of any actual history of violence. Uh, Judge Ho pointed out in a concurrence that often in divorce proceedings, judges will enter restraining orders against both parties, just ordering them to stay away from each other. And th that may seem like a harmless thing to do, but the consequence under Section 922G8 is to make both parties felons if they actually own a gun. And, and as Judge Ho pointed out, it could have the effect of effectively disarming a woman who is genuinely threatened with domestic violence and may actually need a gun to defend herself. So there's a good argument that 922 G8 is a, a well-intentioned law that in practice operates in a very stupid way some of the time and turns a, a lot of ordinary gun owners into felons for you know perhaps not a particularly good reason. I should point out though that Mr. Rahimi himself is nothing like that. He, he is a hardcore criminal who was actually involved in five separate shootings in the two months before he was apprehended. So there are a lot of good reasons uh, to take Mr. Rahimi's guns away personally. The Fifth Circuit just thought that 922 G8 is essentially unconstitutional on its face because it would also sweep up a lot of people who are, are relatively innocent and not very dangerous. The much more important case that the court hasn't granted yet, but that is waiting closely in the wings, is called Range versus Attorney General. The, the in-bank Third Circuit held this summer that 18 20, U.S.C. 922 G1 violates the Second Amendment, at least as applied to, to the defendant in that case. 922 G1 is the general federal felon in possession statute, which bans possession of a firearm by anyone who has been convicted of a crime punishable by more than a year's imprisonment. It is one of the, the most frequently prosecuted federal crimes in the entire system. Now, Mr. Range is an extremely sympathetic litigant. He, he had pled guilty to one count of making false statements about his income in order to obtain about $2,400 in food stamps because he and his wife were struggling to feed their three kids on their minimum wage income. Mr. Range pled guilty. He paid back the money. He served three years probation. Um, and the rest of his criminal history was basically traffic offenses and, and one count of fishing without a license. Years later, he tried to buy a firearm. Uh, and he failed the background check because 922 G1 prohibits him from owning a gun. He's technically a felon. So he sued for a declaration that the law violates the Second Amendment as applied to him. And the Third Circuit took the case in bank and held that there's no real historical support for taking guns away from nonviolent offenders, even if their crimes were technically a felony. Indeed, the Third Circuit majority pointed out that even when the old common law would have authorized capital punishment, 
That doesn't necessarily mean historically that permanent disarmament would have been acceptable if the death penalty wasn't actually imposed. To the contrary, for the most part, once you finished a criminal sentence in the 18th and 19th century, you were allowed to have guns again. The government sought and received an extension of the deadline to file a cert petition in the range case until October 5th, um, but it's a pretty safe bet that they will seek review. Um, when the, the range cert petition is filed, I suspect the court will probably just hold it pending the decision in Rahimi, and then they could either just remand for further consideration in light of whatever they decide to say in Rahimi or, or grant independent review. But the range case is a very big deal. 922 G1 is probably the most commonly prosecuted federal crime. It's very easy for federal prosecutors to prove. If the Third Circuit's decision stands, it potentially means that thousands and thousands of criminal sentences will have to be vacated. It would restore firearms rights to a whole lot of nonviolent offenders. Um, and litigating those issues could end up being a, a sort of full-time job for U.S. attorney's offices. Um, I'm also really interested in the methodology issue, which hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but could be really critical. In range, the Third Circuit held that 922 G1 is unconstitutional as applied to nonviolent offenders like Brian Range. But in the Rahimi case, the Fifth Circuit held that 922 G8 is facially unconstitutional because a lot of domestic violence restraining orders don't really rest on sufficient findings about dangerousness. The Fifth Circuit appears to have applied in the Rahimi case something kind of like Fifth First Amendment over breadth doctrine to the Second Amendment. Um, and that's really interesting. Whether it's appropriate or not could have a big impact on Second Amendment litigation going forward. It's usually pretty easy to hypothesize some sympathetic litigant who could possibly be swept up by a law, even when the actual defendant before the court is a very bad actor, as he is in the Rahimi case. And so whether or not facial challenges are appropriate in Second Amendment cases could end up being a really important part of the jurisprudence. The other big civil liberties issue this term is a set of First Amendment issues about how the government engages with social media. So, so far, again, we have two cases, but again, there are even more important cases that are waiting in the wings and, and almost certain to be granted later. The two we already have, which will be argued in November, are Linkey versus Freed and O'Connor Ratcliffe versus Garnier. They're both about when public officials can block commenters on their social media accounts. So both of them involve public officials who use their personal Facebook page or, or Twitter uh, account to communicate with constituents, including about official matters. And in both cases, members of the public who were unhappy with those officials for one reason or another left angry comments on their posts. And the public official then blocked them so that their comments would no longer show up. In the Linkey versus Freed case, uh, constituents were angry about Mr. Freed's handling of the, the COVID epidemic in, in Port Huron, Michigan, where he's the city manager. They left angry comments about it on his Facebook page, and he essentially blocked them. So is that official censorship of ideas? Or is it just a citizen doing what anybody with a Facebook account is allowed to do to their annoying relatives? Everyone agrees that it would be a First Amendment problem for sure if citizens were selectively blocked on the basis of viewpoint or content from participating on a social media account that the government is itself somehow paying for or you know, that the government is maintaining as you know, part of its official duties. Then it would clearly be a kind of a public forum like a city park and the people administering it couldn't discriminate on the basis of content or viewpoint. 
But in these cases, the account was nominally personal and the public official used it you know, to post pictures of their grandchildren and complain about the Yankees or whatever, in addition to sometimes posting about official business. And the question is, is whether the account becomes a kind of official public forum just because the officials often communicated about official business and may have sort of conveyed the appearance that it was an official communications channel. The Sixth Circuit said no, the Ninth Circuit said yes, so the Supreme Court is going to resolve the split. In the long run, it would be pretty easy for public officials to adjust either way to a decision in these cases. Maybe they will just have to become more careful about maintaining a clean separation between their personal and official social media accounts. Um, there are a couple of cases waiting in the wings, though, that are potentially much more important. NetChoice versus Moody and NetChoice versus Paxton are both about laws that you may have heard about in Texas and Florida that try to restrict the ability of social media platforms to moderate user posts. Now, this mostly comes out of mainly conservative frustration with the sense that Facebook and Twitter and their ilk were selectively censoring conservative ideas. And the laws do several things. They prohibit the platforms from deleting uh, or downvoting uh, certain posts by users on the basis of the content or the viewpoint expressed in those posts. They require the platforms to explain why they deleted something and to provide certain due process protections to users like a right to appeal if you think you've been improperly censored. And more generally, they require the platforms to disclose the rules and the algorithms that they apply that determine which posts get widely disseminated and which don't. Now, the supporters of these laws cast them as striking a blow for the First Amendment rights of social media users not to have their posts censored for political reasons. The companies say that the laws violate the First Amendment rights of the social media companies by forcing them to disseminate content that they find objectionable. Um, and again, we have a circuit split. The Fifth Circuit sided with the social media users. The Eleventh Circuit sided with the companies. This is a really interesting clash of First Amendment values on both sides. And the right answer, I think, really comes down to whether you think companies like Facebook and Twitter are more like a, a public park or maybe the phone company, which just serve as a conduit for the speech of others, or, or whether instead they are, are more like a newspaper, which is making its own editorial decisions about what to publish. The Supreme Court held a long time ago in a case called Miami Herald versus Tornillo that states can't force newspapers to publish content like op-eds that they don't want to publish. Florida had a, a right of reply law that forced newspapers to carry responses from public officials when the public official was criticized. And the Supreme Court held that that violated the newspaper's right to sort of curate their own op-ed page. I think this is genuinely hard. Uh, on the one hand, the social media companies are, are big fans of Section 230 of the Communications Act which says that they can't be held responsible in damages for things that users post on the platforms. That seems to make it clear that the speaker in a social media post is the user, not the company, right? But on the other hand, the social media companies really do have strong editorial interests here. You know, if people's Facebook feeds get overrun with hate speech or borderline pornography, then people are going to stop using Facebook and they certainly aren't going to let their teenagers sign up. So the companies say that they have to exercise editorial judgment in order to curate the sort of community that they are trying to develop. And if you think about the analogy to the, the Miami Herald versus Tornillo case, op-eds in newspapers are clearly the speech of the person who wrote them too. Um, but nonetheless, the court has held that the newspaper has speech interests of its own bound up in which op-eds to publish and which not to. Um, 
So the Supreme Court invited the government's views about what it should do with these cases. The Biden administration filed a brief uh, earlier this month telling the Supreme Court that it should grant review in both cases and siding with uh, the social media companies on the merits in both cases. When the administration says that the Supreme Court should take a case, they almost always do. Um, and the court voted on these cases at yesterday's conference. We don't have the outcome yet, but my guess is that we'll get an, an order announcing a grant of certiorari in both cases later this week. Um, the other shoe that's waiting to drop is the injunction recently entered against the Biden administration that prevents the government from coercing the social media companies to remove social media content that the government regards as misinformation, such as vaccine skepticism and QAnon conspiracy stuff. Um, but also there have been some allegations that the government coerced these companies to suppress real journalism about things like the lab leak theory of uh, COVID's origins or Hunter Biden's laptop uh, and the like. Elon Musk released some Twitter documents earlier this year uh, showing that federal law enforcement has been working very, very closely with the social media companies um, about you know, what is and isn't misinformation. Um, and you know, maybe the, the, the government's uh, cooperation with these companies sort of crossed the line into something that you might call coercion. The Fifth Circuit, the a district court enjoined the administration from a, a wide range of, of conduct and in interacting with these companies. The Fifth Circuit actually cut way back on that broad injunction recently um, and narrowed it to a, a, an injunction against you know, overt coercion of the social media companies. But the Biden administration uh, has has asked for um, a uh, a delay to consider taking the case up to the Supreme Court, and is signaling that it's unwilling to accept even the very limited injunction that remains. Um, so they they may very well ask the court to take the case. I'm not sure I understand the government strategy personally. I mean, if they take the case to the court on these terms, they could easily lose. Um, but I, I guess they think that the the principle is too important not to fight about. And finally, I wanted to say a quick word about a tax case uh, called Moore versus the United States. Charles and Kathleen Moore got caught up by a, a provision of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which imposed a mandatory repatriation tax on Americans who own shares in certain foreign companies um, that have retained earnings overseas. That This was a one-time thing um, as part of a 2017 law that will generally shift the taxation of overseas income from a uh, corporations being taxed on their overseas worldwide income to a, a new system in which corporations are generally going to be taxed where income is earned. But previously, there's sort of $2.4 trillion of overseas retained income that is stacked up out there that would fall into a crack between the, the two systems uh, if we don't have a sort of transition rule. And of course, the government wants some of that money. And so they, they impose this one-time mandatory repatriation tax. The problem is the 16th Amendment, which authorized a federal income tax, but only a tax on income. And the Supreme Court has said that income is a real accession to wealth. The Moors say, we don't have income. The, this corporation over in India has some money, but we've never seen any of it. And we got a $15,000 tax bill and have really no way to pay it. The, the Ninth Circuit said that it's okay to impose that tax, but the Moors convinced the Supreme Court to arguing that the Ninth Circuit was blurring the line between income and wealth in a way that would open the door to the kind of wealth taxes that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have been uh, proposing over the past decade. Um, I think the court is, is likely to realize that there is maybe less to the case than meets the eye, 
Um, the, the case isn't really about unrealized gain, like the appreciation of, of stock that hasn't been sold. Their company company in, in India has real income from selling stuff. Um, that Those profits haven't been sent back to the United States yet. But one way to think about that repatriation tax is that it basically treats overseas corporations as if they were partnerships and taxes um, income on a pass-through basis to the shareholders in the same way that, that partners are taxed on partnership income, whether or not that that income is, is actually distributed. Um, so why is the 16th Amendment issue necessarily different just because this is a corporation and not a partnership? I, I think the court will work hard to find a sort of middle path here that reaffirms that the 16th Amendment doesn't permit over wealth taxes, but but somehow you know does it without blowing up the whole structure of partnership tax. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to um, Aditya to talk uh, a little bit more about some of the the cases that that raise uh, administrative law um, issues. Although I wonder whether um, you have a view on the the sort of regulatory aspects of the social media cases. Yeah, no, thanks so much, uh, Scott. And uh, I think the the point that I would maybe stress or reiterate, which you've already made, is this whole question of how to understand social media regulation. It's a very interesting question, uh, and as you put it. Um, should we think of them as being closer to newspapers? And if so, if we think of them that way, it would be jarring to think that the government could closely regulate the content of the websites. Um, or should we think of them as closer to phone companies or, or railroads? Um, and in that case, uh, the, the government is long required through some sort of common carrier regulation, uh, some sort of equal access to services by common carriers, uh, even if persons who uh, maybe all of us on this call would think have abhorrent views. Um, and uh, so one of the social media companies in this case, they argued um, and they quoted an opinion by uh, then Judge Kavanaugh that government, quote, may not tell Twitter or YouTube what videos to post or tell Facebook or Google what content to favor. And of course, the government has long told the telegraph company or the telephone company or the railroad company what customers to provide services to. Uh, and of course, regulation of that kind, railroads, telegraphs, telephone companies, those are some of the first pieces of complex, important federal regulation in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. You can think of the 1887 creation of the Interstate Commerce Commission or the early 20th century uh, creation of the Federal Communications Commission and like agencies. Um, so I think this case poses uh, the question whether internet platforms should be analogized to those common carriers or to, or to free speech participants, and that's a very interesting question. Um, okay, well, uh, uh, let me give a preview of some of the court's cases that are in my areas of interest, which are administrative law and computer crime. There are not any currently granted cases in the latter area, but the term is shaping up to be a potential blockbuster in the former. Uh, here are three, uh, briefly, I'll talk about three administrative law cases that are worth keeping an eye on. Um, both because they might tell us something about the court and its jurisprudential approach, and also because they might actually have very significant consequences in uh, everyone's practice areas. So the uh, the Marquis administrative law case, this term is undoubtedly Loper-Bright versus Raimondo, which I'll talk about uh, in just a moment at some length. And there's a second case of interest, which is called Jarkisi versus Securities Exchange Commission versus SEC. Um, and there's a third important case on the rarely litigated appropriations clause, um, CFPB versus CFSA, uh, in the interest of hopefully a useful discussion, 
what I plan to do is spend a chunk of time now on Loper Bride, uh, then comparatively less time um, mapping out the issues of Jarkazy, and perhaps we can just leave the, the appropriations clause issue to Q&A if, if anyone's interested, or I'm happy to field emails or something like that on that topic. Um, so Loper Bride first. In the interest of full disclosure, I did file an amicus brief in this case on my own behalf, and the amicus brief is in favor of neither party, so you can um, judge my biases based on those disclosures and taking a look at the brief if you'd like. It does present my perspective on how the court might resolve the issue presented. Um, here, let me just try to briefly summarize what's presented and what's at stake before making, I think, some exceedingly modest predictions. Um, Loper Bride itself, it's a seemingly innocuous statutory case about whether the National Marine Fisheries Service, a federal agency, may require fishing vessels to pay the salaries of government-mandated monitors who are placed on the vessel to oversee its operations. The Loper Bride Fishing Company and the agency are disputing whether the statute authorizes the requirement that a private party pay government official salaries. And the DC Circuit in the case below, it had interpreted the statute to allow for such a requirement. In and of itself, that may not appear to be the type of case to produce a potential blockbuster, but as many of you know, any federal statutory issue presented in any federal court might present the question of what's known as Chevron deference, the question whether the agency gets to fill in so-called gaps in statutes. And so uh, by way of backdrop, which many of you are probably familiar with, but um, in the interest of uh, making sure that we're all on the same page, the Chevron case, which was decided by six justice court in 1984, it's provided the governing language and framework for addressing ambiguous federal statutes administered by agencies. In some very influential paragraphs, Chevron established what became known as the Chevron two-step. The first step was, quote, whether Congress has directly spoken to the precise question at issue. And the court then said, if the intent of Congress is clear, employing traditional tools of statutory construction, uh, the court must give that intent effect. Um, but the court then said that Congress could explicitly leave a gap for the agency to fill um, through an express delegation of authority, or it could do so implicitly. And if Congress has not directly addressed the precise question, Chevron instructed that the court shouldn't simply impose its own construction on the statute as would be necessary in the absence of an administrative interpretation. Rather, the second step of Chevron asks, is the agency's answer based on a permissible construction of the statute? Um, and so in this fashion, Chevron suggested that the court need not conclude that the agency construction was even the reading the court would have reached if the question initially had arisen in a judicial proceeding. Okay, all that may well be familiar to many on this call. Um, you may also know that prior to Chevron, the court's practice on this question of deferring to agencies was somewhat inconsistent, but generally the court deferred to agency interpretations based on a variety of factors. So there was a multi-factor style approach. You may also know that since Chevron, which was decided in 1984, the court has introduced some additional factors to the analysis, most notably in a 2001 opinion known as Mead, um, which has complicated the, uh, the seemingly simple two-part test. And as a result of Mead and other decisions, um, I'd expect that very few administrative law professors actually teach Chevron and the resulting doctrine as a simple two-part analysis. 
um, but rather say that there are further complications to um, the uh, the approach, uh, even under current law. Okay, back to Loper Bright. When the fishing company filed its petition for certiorari before the court, after losing at the DC Circuit, it naturally raised technical questions about the statutory framework under this fishing statute. But Loper Bright also included this question in the petition. It asked whether the court should overrule Chevron or at least clarify that statutory silence does not constitute an ambiguity requiring deference to the agency. I paraphrased just a bit to shorten it, but that's the question, whether the court should overrule Chevron. The court granted Loper Bright's petition in a May order, but limited its review to consideration of the do we overrule Chevron question alone, um, rather than all the statutory minutiae about sharing costs in the fishing industry. Um, and so what's happening here? Uh, recall that Chevron had said that the court need not conclude that the agency construction was even the reading the court would have reached if the question initially had arisen in a judicial proceeding. And some cases in the post-Chevron era had run with that language to make clear that an agency might adopt a statutory construction um, that a reviewing court doesn't believe is the, quote, best one. Um, that perspective was supported by some, criticized, criticized, by, criticized by others, most notably then Judge Gorsuch in a Tenth Circuit opinion before he became Justice Gorsuch. And the court hasn't invoked Chevron to defer to an agency's construction of a statute for some years now, uh, notwithstanding that the case continues to be one of the most highly cited opinions of all time. Um, so it seems to me that the court just generally believes something had to be done uh, because there's a potential, potential mismatch between the approach taken by the Supreme Court on statutory interpretation and the approach that's being taken by lower courts, rightly so, following Chevron. Um, and that's obviously untenable in some ways because it'll lead to a number of cases in which the Supreme Court would decide issues differently from an appellate court. And one would think that the sound judicial system requires courts to be roughly on the same page on such big issues. So a first exceedingly modest prediction. I don't know what might happen in Loper Bright itself, there's always the possibility the court finds it to be a poor vehicle for a grand pronouncement. Um, but at some point, one would think that the court would have to give some sort of grand pronouncement on this topic, which tells lower courts, OK, here's how we do statutory interpretation. Uh, in other words, um, I guess I'm, I'm doubtful that this is an issue that the court can duck over time, just not referencing Chevron at all. Um, they'd have to embrace one approach to Chevron or the other at some point. Um, so having said all that, um, here are some thoughts on the case and the briefing, um, which is complete now at this point, except for Loper Bright's reply. The first question one might ask is, whatever the rule about deference is going to be, um, whether Chevron or something else, how are we going to derive it? Where, where does that come from? And here there are a number of possible answers um, which have been raised by the parties. So um, the Loper Bright company says, well, the constitution, and maybe that's article three's vesting of judicial power in courts requires some sort of de novo, non-Chevron style review, um, or uh, the due process clause on the theory that due process requires de novo review and no deference to courts. There are complications with that. I'm just saying that this is the argument that is being made. Um, the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, which was enacted in 1946 to generally govern administrative procedure, and there's some language in there instructing courts to um, decide all relevant questions of law. 
and interpret constitutional and statutory provisions. And there's some other, other language as well. Um, or perhaps just some sort of common law, case law process um, on the theory that courts can develop and tell you what the best standard of review is with respect to agency uh, interpretations and the court's interpretations and when they conflict. Um, so here's another uh, very modest prediction, I think. Uh, the constitutional arguments against Chevron deference, if they were taken to their logical conclusion, they might also impact a whole host of other areas of law. Uh, and I'm thinking here about Section 1983 civil rights litigation, habeas proceedings, adjudication of writs of mandamus. Um, courts are told in each of these settings to perhaps like defer to some party or the other. And that means the constitutional arguments will have to be treated carefully in some sort of nuanced way to make sure that the court really intends the consequences that would flow from a constitutional ruling. Um, that might lead to the, the court to turn to the APA arguments and the, uh, the case law arguments. We will see. They pose their own nuances and complications. So that's a thought about the source of the law and how the court might try to derive it. Um, okay, now what about the content of, of the law? Here, my thought is that in the pre-Chevron era, there was a view with respect to deference to administrative agencies, uh, namely that sometimes uh, courts did defer to administrative agencies, albeit perhaps more limited than uh, the Chevron two-step might suggest. Um, but with the qualifications that have then been added to the Chevron two-step, um, remember that 2001 opinion in Mead, it seems as though there's a more limited domain for when Chevron deference applies than what one might expect from reading just those two paragraphs in the Chevron opinion itself. And what I'm suggesting is that whoever prevails um, will probably see an opinion that says the deference applies in some circumstances and not in others. Um, precisely what circumstances is the billion dollar question. Uh, if you wanna see my view on the topic, you can have a look at the amicus brief that I previously referenced. Um, but regardless of who prevails, I think there'll be deference to some interpretations and not to others. And what we're discussing here is the boundaries of that doctrine. Um, and the natural follow-up question to that set up for the case is, okay, what are the boundaries going to be? Uh, and I'll just say, when I describe this as a billion dollar question, I meant that literally, namely that I'd be collecting a billion dollars and not writing law review articles if I knew the answer um, to that to that question. So hopefully that presents the, uh, the issues in Loper Bright um, the Chevron case uh, for this term, um, so that um, so that folks on this call can understand some of the uh, the uh, the nuances. And I'll turn now to um, the second case I wanted to highlight: Jarkezi versus SEC. Um, in this case, Jarkezi launched two hedge funds that the SEC believed violated the securities laws in various ways. The SEC initiated an administrative proceeding against Jarkezi under the Securities Acts, not in an Article III court, rather before an administrative law judge in the agency. And after some early litigation, the SEC imposed a civil penalty and barred Jarkezi from participating in various activities in the securities industry. Um, Jarkezi then filed a petition for review with the Fifth Circuit, which found the administrative scheme unconstitutional on various grounds. And the SEC then successfully obtained Supreme Court review of the Fifth Circuit's decision. The case is a very complicated one to summarize because there are a number of independent issues, any one of which could resolve the case and potentially produce a blockbuster. In fact, you know, I, I might say that the case is actually three cases wrapped into one. 
Um, so I'll just briefly highlight the three issues before we uh, turn back to Scott and open up for uh, discussion. The first issue has to do with the Seventh Amendment jury trial right. Uh, and the question is whether the statutory provisions empowering the SEC to initiate and adjudicate enforcement proceedings seeking civil penalties um, violate the Seventh Amendment. So in some ways, that's uh, you might think of that as an administrative law issue, but you could also think of it as a civil liberties issue. And I'm curious to get Scott's thoughts on the topic. Um, the second issue in the case has to do with whether Congress violated the non-delegation doctrine by permitting the SEC to decide in each case, whether to bring a civil enforcement action in federal district court, an enforcement action within the agency, or no enforcement action at all. And as you might know, the non-delegation doctrine, um, it's a doctrine that the court has long understood to be an enforce, uh, an inference, excuse me, from Article I's vesting of legislative power in Congress. But the doctrine has had relatively little bite for at least 90 odd years, perhaps longer. Um, but in a 2019 case, Gundy versus United States, some members of the court suggested that they were interested in reinvigorating or invigorating, depending on your perspective, this doctrine. And what the Jarkizi case presents is the intersection between the doctrine and prosecutorial discretion, which is the backdrop norm, conferring a lot of discretion on the government to choose how and when to bring cases. Um, so perhaps something we can explore a little bit more if people have interest in that topic. So that's the second issue. And the third of the three issues has to do with whether Congress violated Article II of the con Constitution by granting for-cause removal protections to administrative law judges in agencies whose heads also enjoy for-cause removal protection. Uh, this is a claim that is an outgrowth of the court's jurisprudence on the president's removal authority, um, which is an inference from the vesting clause uh, conferring executive power on the president in Article II um, and thereby uh, um, um, providing for some sort of presidential control of the executive branch. And the question that's arising in the case is whether um, by conferring the removal protection for cause on ALJs, when the SEC's commissioners um, arguably, although there's a question here, also have um, some sort of protection, um, whether those two layers pose a problem under um, the courts now almost uh, just over a decade old ruling in the free enterprise fund case. Um, so I'll stop right there um, and just make sure that we uh, have a, a little bit of back and forth time as well. Um, I had mentioned early on that there's a third case that, that could be uh, quite interesting on the appropriations clause and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Happy to talk about that case if it's of interest to people as well. Um, Scott, I wonder if I could throw the ball back in your court if you have any thoughts on any of the foregoing. Well, I, I'm I'm very interested in in the Jarkezi case. Uh, you know, on first principles, it's a little bit hard to see why an administrative agency should have the ability to impose you know money fines against people um, without a jury trial just by calling them civil penalties. Right um, now, you know, that practice has a, a very, very long, deep pedigree um, in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. And, you know, this court has shown itself to be, you know, reluctant sometimes to uh, to take on well-established precedent when it doesn't necessarily have to. Um, and so maybe they'll, you know, they'll find a way to deal with it. But I, I suspect if they were looking at that issue on a blank slate, 
they might say that that what we now call civil penalties are either kind of like criminal fines or you know either kind of like um, money damages. And either way, the Bill of Rights would require would require a jury. Um, and you know it's not entirely clear how good the historical basis for this public rights doctrine that creates a, an exception to those principles really is. Um, so I, I'll be interested to see. All right. Well, uh, we're uh, we're out of time, but it's been uh, delightful talking to you all today. Thank you for taking the time to join us. The Alumni Association and the Foundation uh, work hard to keep alumni connected to the law school and to one another. And um, wanted me to pass along that if you want to stay up to date with alumni programming, uh, visit http www.law.virginia.edu/alumni. Um, and uh, have a great day. Thank you for joining us.